I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Series 2 of Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we could all do much better. This episode of Triable Podcast, we go to Yorkshire to see Olwyn and Tom on an amazing project at Hubie, and you'll hear more about that later on. But before we get there, we have a couple of uh, my colleagues who are bee bathing, and we interview them. And we also do a Teams interview with Richard Scott. Richard Scott is now working for the Eden Project, but also has long links with land life and the city of Liverpool. Richard is one of the most inspirational people I've ever worked with. He's into innovative, creative ways of conserving nature. He's, he's taught me so much about wildflowers. So we've got a number of different voices on this podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. We're going to begin this week's podcast by talking to two bee bathers. And they're lying down with their heads surrounded by viper's bugloss and lots and lots and lots of bees. And they're giggling. So just tell me what you're doing. (laughs) It feels very unusual because we're lying in the mud (laughs) Um, surrounded by bees but it immediately feels relaxing, actually. I'm nodding off as I'm speaking to you. <laughs> it's amazing. You're lying in a patch with oxide daisies and buttercups and plantains, and backdrop is this fantastic blue of viper's bugloss, and it's absolutely buzzing with bees, and I'm going to leave these guys alone for half an hour to chill. So I've just joined Richard Scott on a Teams call. Uh, Richard's down in Liverpool and we couldn't get together for this, but Richard, I found you one of the most inspiring people to work with um, and your penchant is wildflowers. Tell, tell me where you came from and what your, what your start point was. Well, in, in many ways it was copses and hedgerows um, so I, I grew up in Lincolnshire so I didn't grow up in Liverpool um, I grew up in um, rural Lincolnshire my mum had come from the sticks right. in Lincolnshire, North Lincolnshire and but in a beautiful way we were introduced as children We, you know, they moved to kind of for our benefit to like a, a bigger village 
um, so we get better schooling, really. But we were introduced at an early age, and my mum knew where all the violets were in the in the hedgerows and the spinneys, some of which just you know still there, some beautiful sort of sweet violets. So that was my introduction to wildflowers. But we were also, you know, like. <laughs> in a way a bit like gypsies um, taught from an early age to gift posies picked from these spinnies in a, in a kind of Romany way really just right. as, uh, as part of a, you know as a rural tradition you know almost in a kind of Thomas Hardy way and you know my granddad worked with horses in that part of the world so I went and um, got interested I went to London University got interested in urban ecology and uh, GLC, as it then was, still just, I think, um, was doing really interesting things in urban ecology. And I found that really fascinating because it, it kind of crossed over to, you know, like that kind of countryside experience. And um, and afterwards, got fortunately got, um, after a little time of unemployment, um, got involved in sort of community schemes initially in Derby and then... Um, the big shot in terms of moving to Merseyside and, and seeing the challenge of derelict land and um, initially uh, doing some research pots for English nature, which produced a little booklet called Flowers in the Grass, which is mm -hmm. still available actually right. online. Okay. Um, um, but a wonderful organisation called Land Life and a fellow called Grant Luscombe who, you know, um, certainly hit off an instant bond in terms of the opportunity and they'd got a great legacy behind them already which actually stretched back to you know over um, 20 years really at that time in terms of being the very first urban ecology group in the country who had been inspired um, by the Dutch and the Heme Parks in Amstelveen and it was like wow these you know and, and producing wildflower seed at the same time and sustainably doing so that a lot ground. of that was kind of this post-industrial liverpool landscape where yeah. where sites were being de de demolished and then wildflower seed was being used on those sites to bring them back to life essentially yeah so we learned a lot a lot had already been learned but it was all that kind of stuff was in our you know in the bones of that organization which was wonderful to see and then there was great individuals like tony bradshaw he was here in liverpool he was a pioneer for res restoring land so you know and the world famous for that actually and but we used to meet characters from other centers like um you know sheffield the great oliver gilbert for example he was he's invented the term urban commons and um, yeah. so we met some wonderful people very lucky to meet some wonderful people and um um, Miriam Rothschild, for example, was a patron of, of Land Life, along with Spike Milligan, incidentally. So right, it was okay. quite an eclectic blend of culture and ecology, which I do think is really important. For, well, it for is, or it is, and I'm, I, and I know that part of your work is, is is very much on the arts side, isn't it? Arts and community and ecology all wrapped up in one space. Well, there couldn't have been a, a bigger week last week in some ways, because it was a sad week last week, because there was somebody we worked quite closely with the last... I guess sort of five years. We knew him a little bit before, and he asked us to do help him with an exhibition called Casting Seeds, and that was Jamie Reed, which I, I guess a lot of people won't know his name, um, but he did the was it the album al cover for the, the album cover album. guy. Okay, Sex Pistols. Yeah. Okay. Which, which, in all honesty, being here in Liverpool, and he lived in Liverpool, you know, for twenty years. He was from um, this, um, Croydon. I think originally, right. but he, he Malcolm McLaren called him 
from the Scottish Croft where he was relied in the time because they'd been at art school together to help him with this project, which effectively was the Sex Pistols. But people pigeonhole him with that period of art, and he was—he's actually, you know, like continued um, in a in a strong vein. So, for example, when Pussy Riot played Liverpool, and they didn't play, I think they played Edinburgh Festival and one gig in Liverpool, but I think the reason they came to Liverpool was to see J.B. Reid, who did them a post in a Putin. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's wonderful to meet these kinds of people, and suddenly he died last week, and right. you suddenly realise that, you know, from, um, you know, his local community impact, which was involved with community centres and things, um, for example, the Flory, which was a, um, you know, like a, in real need of um, restoration, was falling to pieces, and he, he's, he, you know, he did these posters, "God Save the Flory," and um, that that really sparked that campaign, which is hugely successful. You know, it's a good, great community centre now. So, so you, and this is the lovely thing about you, and I've always been inspired by what you've done because it, 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 it's. We have this problem in, in conservation that conservation is seen as being out with the human psyche, if you like. It's kind of a nice yeah. add-on, isn't it? Oh, we need to produce food. We need to do this. Oh, and we'll protect that little bit over there because it's pretty. People like going yeah. there on Sundays, whatever. Actually, what you've done, and Grant, and those people that you worked with, you've brought ecology into people's lives I mean, one of my one of my joys was to see you in Everton Park, maybe three summers ago, with the wildflowers that you'd created with with the local authority there in Everton right. Park, in the core of the city, and seeing people loving it. Yeah, well, and music was very important to that as well in terms of the sewings and you know, worked with some great um, musicians actually, and, and I know you're a musician too, but some great fiddlers and you know clarinetists and you know like um and that's been really wonderful because that that adds a, a lovely dimension to the atmosphere of sewing just like playing in the seed and and makes them so much more memorable and enjoyable you know and um and accessible accessible really into the towns thing it harks back to this thing about um when i started my career and it, it hasn't changed which is the um frightening thing in a way um, 97% was the figure for like loss of species rich grasslands. What is the percentage today? The same. It's the same. <laughs> Despite all the work we've done. So, you know, there's some great stuff being done, don't get yeah. me wrong, but um, it does it does illustrate the plight of the countryside. We haven't it? eroded that 97%. No. Not, uh, not in the way... I think we put it probably in, in places like... In some ways, like we've done... You know, close to close to people's hearts, but it just shows you the magnitude. And the other thing worth pointing out is we're a great country for amateur naturalists and bird watchers and all those things. But um, you know, we, despite all that, you know, despite you know, since you know, 1947 when the countryside acts were established and things, you know, obviously they they protected the good places, the national nature reserve, national parks, mm. great thing to do. But the the, the kind of matrix of nature has still been a long decline, and we haven't, you know, we've, you know organisations like ours have talked about reversing biodiversity decline, but it's it, it hasn't happened, despite you know probably being the best best um, aware country in the world, probably. 
So I think you know there, there's a disjunct between just looking at things and actually mm. putting it back, and I think it's and but, talking about it. I but this this is the do. point about policy. It's it's got to be when you cut somebody open, it's got to have nature conservation through the core. And we haven't got there. We haven't got there in policy. Governments seem to successively, every time it's economic growth, doff, 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 it, it always pushes nature to the side, doesn't it? And, and, and unless it's in the core of this, we're not going to get there. Um, but before we depress ourselves too much, I mean, one of the things which we, which we came together on, the first time I really met you with, was with a colleague called Simon, and we just bought 18 acres of land at Wealdon Copse in Cheshire, and you'd got this nutty idea of taking a massive great plough, inverting the soil and putting wildflower seeds into it. Forest of flowers. And that was in 2005, I think. Yeah, it's with two, yeah 2004 five. That's when we got the DEFRA funding, which is the important thing we did it with actually government money and argued our case and got the funding um, and reported to DEFRA and... Um, and you know, like it's a it's a never-ending story. Hopefully, in terms of putting it into work and on the ground, because it's been one of the most exciting and, and rewarding projects we've done. And you know, a lot of that was down to you and you know your colleagues Simon and for for finding these places for us to to showcase them really. But I remember people. I mean, I planted loads of trees by then, and we could plant trees, and and people would enjoy the planting day and whatever. I'd never had communities where we got postcards, letters, phone calls, emails saying, OMG, this is the most amazing thing we've ever seen because it was an 18-acre field full of colour. And that was the Forest of Flowers thing, wasn't it? It brought people, people streaming in, photographers, dog walk, everybody came in to see it because it's just amazing. Yeah, and no, it just shows the power of seed and using it well, but it's that thing about using using it to the utmost, isn't it? And the opportunity of seed. So, you know, we've always said nature is about opportunity, and it is, but a lot, the danger is seed can be wasted. So the preparation, which we've learnt about from, you know, some of these urban projects, particularly one actually, which I have to say was collecting seed there yesterday um, in Woolfall Heath in Highton, in the middle of a council estate, um, is solid with, um, you know, like devil's bit scabious, which I would say, in all honesty, is as good as a national nature reserve. Um, it, it hasn't got that designation for us because it's controversial in terms of where it is. But I've been to places, um, you know, where um, those species are supposed to be in, in sort of national showcase, and to be honest, it's denser and thicker, <laughs> and in many ways, more joyous not devaluating the countryside at all but in terms of proximity to people and uh, that connection it just shows what's possible so it's wonderful to flip that back into the countryside with some of that experience i suppose so i'm going to cut that down so basically we 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 met you you'd done all this urban stuff you decided with grant that actually the countryside needed the support just as much if not more so than the urban areas so we take forest of flowers out to the countryside and we develop deliver these projects your first one at lunt our first one, Wealden Cops. This is 18, 19, 20 years ago. Roll that forward, we've got Tom and Olwen, who we're interviewing later on in Yorkshire. Theirs is now eight years old. That's reputed to be one of the best butterfly sites in Yorkshire now, and it's only eight years old. So we have this marvellous opportunity to create biodiverse sites using a plough. What's, what's the process at work? Why does it work? 
Why does it work? Was was we didn't prove it. We we came across an article which was um, called the novelty of something forgotten, which I f- we found you know like an, an early internet search which I've looked for since and it's completely gone. I mean we you know and it was. Um, done out of Denmark with Danish ploughs, but it had actually been in Lithuania. Mm-hmm. And they were saying how marvellous the tree establishment was, particularly on these sites where they'd use these traditional Danish um, forestry ploughs, which were used around the edges of fields um, to, 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 for shelter belt planting. And they recognised, you know, like a long time ago, so they actually did this with horses, you know, like right, big, okay. big numbers of horses, <laughs> something to see. <laughs> Um, but it was basically survivorship of trees. So in Denmark, the soils are a lot sandier, um, and they recognised by doing this, it encouraged the trees to root deeper to the topsoil, which was then effectively double dig down deeper. And um, the roots of the, of the young trees were establishing faster, and the growth was, was you know, like um, what we've witnessed and you've witnessed, um, you know, like three times as fast and so they, they they knew that it was better for these shelter plants bell plantations around windswept danish fields and they reflected this this project was in lithuania which they were doing the same and, and so we contacted the initially we contacted the president of the world plowing association because we were seeking a plow that did this yeah and he um i think we'd found this article but we didn't know where to get the plow and we knew right. it was denmark and it so happened that the, the president of the World Ploughing Association was Danish. Aha. And so, and it was a fax, actually. It was fax communication, because we hadn't got an email for him, I don't think. And, um, and um, we sent uh, a fax <laughs> saying what we wanted to do is, do you know where you can get this plough? And he goes, you've got to go and see our friends, you know, in, um, in Denmark, in Bowland in Denmark. And that's, that's where we found them and, and had met them, um, saw their own little strips around the farm, you know, around the, where they made the ploughs and stuff, and yeah. it, was, it was fantastic. And it was obvious to us that the simple thing of bringing the lower fertility, um, but key point, weed-free um, mm. subsoils to the surface, particularly on sandy soils, um, was fantastic. You know, it's it was like... Um, was like a dream so there's no competition um, there wouldn't be any problematic um, weeds or perennial weeds and very quickly um, we saw that repeated in, in site after site and woodland sites heathland sites you know meadow areas um, you know glade areas um, and it's been a delight and, and unfortunately we haven't been able to get around a lot of the ones we've done in the past but you almost know this like really great surprises waiting <laughs> well we we know we know there because I, I think some of your early work has shown that actually what happens is the bees the insects the hoverflies come in with their own spores with their own seed mass so you i i, I think some of the stuff you worked on shows that actually you plant what was it 16 broadly wildflower seeds some annuals some perennials and then that mass of nectar and pollen draws in yeah it's a su- 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 sort of successional idea, really. So the annuals are important, and you know, like like in urban areas, it's the kind of sh- show opener, you know, yeah. in terms of 
um, pollination benefit from year one, and, um, but also actually very rare landscapes in a European sense. And most of those species are, you know, are very rare in in the countryside across Europe. And John Rodwell, who's the um, you know architect of the NVC, you know, made that clear to me in terms of his his like. Um, delight at seeing that sort of, sort of succession rather than just going for a particular set of species at a particular point in time it's it's actually how things move um, yeah. and its trajectory and um, and of course management comes into it in a longer term but it's 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 um you know it's a wonderful thing to witness really so in a sense this is where we've had a problem with ecologists isn't it um so i'm i'm great because i don't i haven't none of this training i'm i'm just a massive generalist i love it because the color the chaos and, and i've seen these sites transition from where we start point but actually the fact that it's not in one box has caused us some conversations with conservationists because or ecologists because it's not boxable yeah, that's true. I think, uh, and, and because obviously ploughing and cultivation, particularly the carbon story, has become, you know, viewed with suspicion. But the, the, you know, this is bear in mind, we've taken on areas that were industrially farmed For years. year in, year out, <laughs> year in, and we just did it once. Yeah. So, um, but also the, you know, our hypothesis was like push pushing the topsoil deeper was actually pushing the carbon, um, and there wasn't. You know, a lot of um, faunal life in these soils because they were ravaged mm. agricultural soils. Very little um, in them, really, in terms of the the, the, the diversity. We're not ploughing up, you know, species-rich meadows, and you know. Uh, so I think that that should be taken in, in, into point. But James Lovelock, um, another big name in terms of the Gaia theory, was also a patron of land life. Right. I mean, you, you know, he sadly died only last year I think at 101 or two um, but he was very passionate the idea of pumping biochar or carbon into the soil because soil is the biggest carbon store terrestrially not as big as the oceans but terrestrially it's the biggest one um, and so the combination of that and I think there's so it's certainly been sort of recent papers out of Ireland which have you know confirmed this idea even though their ploughing is a lot less deep um, is actually hitting the nail on some of these carbon ideas in a way that people have just probably not um, accepted. Well, I think. I, I think we go back to that once-only operation. That's one thing. Um, I've been out with Lancaster University and we've done some preliminary studies on carbon and their results suggest that overall the operation is probably neutral at day one in terms of carbon, plus or minus a little bit, but it's not a massive problem. Um, and of course, we're then rebuilding a new soil on top of that. So that all those deep rooting wildflowers and then the trees, we're building that soil quite quickly on top. Um, I mean, one of those, it's, I guess it's a soils kind of expert area that. But you, know, I, I've been on site with people saying you can't plow anymore, and then you ask them when they go on holiday. Oh, we're flying to Africa to go to go this, or we're flying to Spain or whatever. And you think, okay, fine, don't fly allow me to plough and put some wildflowers in and next year we'll have butterflies on this site and you just don't go on holiday for a year. How about that? And they all look at their boots. <laughs> yeah, no, good point. Um, so um, you, you've, you've got a meeting to go to and uh, I, I, I've been plumbing the depths of this. 
I, I've really enjoyed knowing you and uh, you and Grant. I know Grant's retired now quite a few years. Where's your next steps? Where, what, um, I mean, we're still working together. Um, we're still yeah, doing forest or flowers in Cumbria. I think it's reflecting the energies of both sides of the equation. So, you know, um, for example, 60% of the waste construction and demolition waste, which is also big in terms of carbon budgets and the fact that, you know, we should be um, not demolishing so many buildings as, you know, we should be retrofitting all the buildings and that, all that kind of stuff. But the waste themselves, 60% of, of Liverpool's waste is not domestic waste in terms of from people's doorsteps is construction and demolition waste. So there's a reinvigoration of, of the idea of what you can do with those substrates in the same way that we can do that with soils. But we are very keen to push the idea of a cultural soil charter, which mm -hmm. you know we can we can pass to you, which is now gaining momentum. We launched it at the um, World Soil Congress in Glasgow with the uh, um, permission of the British Society of Soil Scientists who, who organised that and you know soil inversion was one of those things in our mind as well as not wasting topsoils you know like in, in urban landscaping schemes so there's a there's a great sort of circular economy story that fits into all this but the soil part is critical I think it's mm. again it's that starting point if people need the right starting point and with all this talk about that biodiversity gain, there is a real worry that, um, you know, a lot of seed could be, well, will be really wasted in all probability because it will be sown, you know, on very rich sites yep. and have a very short trajectory which goes back to, um, you know, very few, dominated by very few grasses and the wildflowers just fading away. So I, I, I've seen so many woodland creation projects done on first house sites where after 15 years you get loads of tall trees, no structure, and in the bottom is dock, thistle, <laughs> Yeah, grass. well I remember Cowick near, near Hull um, going there and um, it was quite a tough one to plough because some of it was really heavy. Yeah. But there was the areas that had been ploughed ordinarily and prepared ordinarily that were like solid with nettles and um, very little else, whereas the diversity was where... And there was orchids and other things, you know, like popping up. So it's it's, it's the things that were able to find their own way too. So there's in in um, at Lunt, for example, um, round-leaved wintergreen, which was like an estuary, and you know they sort of very low numbers of occurrence, you know, like twenty nine a year or something over the whole of the UK. Yeah, and, and, and you've, numbers, you've yeah. got that arriving in an ex-arable, yeah. highly fertile previously yeah, site. Yeah, so that was on a rainfield, yeah. yeah. And it came from the coast, you know, from the coast of Formby probably. And, and no one planted it, it arrived. And, yeah. and, that, and that's, that is the joy of these sites, is actually the fact they are open for business in a way that fertile sites never will be. Um, no, that's the really exciting thing. So I think it's and it's bearing witness. I think everybody who bears witness to that kind of thing, are probably initially surprised, but it's it's the delight of it as well. And, and so it's fantastic to hear about the butterflies in Yorkshire, which I have to say is a big county, isn't it? You know, it's like yeah. Yorkshire's the biggest county. It is. Um, yeah. I mean, so if, yeah. If, if that's recording the highest numbers site-wise in in Yorkshire, if that's if that's correct, it's amazing. Yes, they have the de they have all the knowledge. They have they have detailed records now going back three or four years of butterfly numbers, and it's really impressive. And this was an ex-arable site. 
Richard, I, it's been a, it's been a joy working with you over the years. Thanks very much for the last twenty minutes. Well, thanks for all your help. Well, hopefully this podcast will inspire some other people to do Forester Flowers projects and we can get more involved. But for now, thanks very much, Richard Scott, Land Life, and uh, I wish you very well. Thank you. Thank you. I think we need to get the cat out there. Come on, come on, over here. Do you, do you want the cat? Oh. <laughs> That's, That's good. Um, <clears throat> this is one of my favourite sites in the world, which is Home Farm in Yorkshire, and it's Owen's. And it's Owen and Tom we're talking to you today, and we've got a group coming up to talk to you about this. This is really innovative conservation stuff, isn't it? This is, um, well, I think so anyway. It's a, it's a site we... We just explain what you've done here, Rolly, because I think it's really exciting. So uh, I came back to the site in uh, 2014. I'd been uh, brought up here when my dad farmed it as an organic farm. And uh, I'd uh, grown up with lots of frogs and toads and newts, which I was collecting and looking after, and in a beautiful environment with lots of wildlife around me. But uh, when he retired in... Um, in the 1990s, um, the farm was rented out to um, conventional farmers and uh, a lot of the wildlife got lost. So uh, when I did come back in 2014, I found that uh, much of the wildlife was no longer there and I didn't like it. Yeah. So you decided to do something really radical? Yeah, we decided to make some uh, big changes. Um, so I'd uh, been studying wildflower meadows when I was at Kew Gardens. Um, and I also knew that this area had been a, a giant hunting forest in the 1600s. Um, the forest of gull trees? The forest of gull trees, yeah. yeah. Um, so I wanted to bring back woodlands, but also have wildflowers in the mix as well. Um, so we decided to do an innovative process called uh, topsoil inversion, which uh, gets rid of all that awful high fertility topsoil that yeah. farmers love. Yeah. <laughs> it buries yeah. it down to up to a metre's depth uh, and you're left with lots of subsoil on the surface to uh, sow wildflowers in, which they love. Um, and also planting your trees in, that means you get great tree growth um, as well. So it's a double benefit. So there's uh, really interesting sort of rewilding science and this sort of emergent field. And, and there's, 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 a, there's a bit in there which is that some of where rewilding goes is it, it dispenses with some of that that uh, siloing of it's got to wildflower meadow, it's got to be woodland or whatever and actually it just it kind of throws all these things into one space. It's kind of what you've done here isn't it? You just said well actually we want wildflowers and trees and they're all in the same space. They are yeah. It's, uh, it's a slightly chaotic approach I think you get uh, you, it's unpredictable what you get and so, it's almost unmanageable, isn't it, in that sense? It's a bit unmanageable, yeah. Yeah. But what you, what you have created here is extremely rich. It's a palette of colours, isn't it, this time of year? It's, it's reds and whites and yellows and the flowers, and then trees coming through that. Yeah, the, the visual impact is, uh, is brilliant because the flowers do so well. You get uh, 
a profusion of flowers um, growing amongst the trees, which um, is very engaging for people and visitors when they come. But it also brings back wildlife. Yeah, it's brilliant for the wildlife uh, as well. Um, so the last three years we've been monitoring butterflies on the site uh, and out of the 80 sites monitored in Yorkshire, um, we've been the top site over those three years for the 3,000 sightings each year. So you're the top site in Yorkshire for sightings of butterflies and the work started in 2015, it's now 2023, eight years. You've gone from quite bland <coughs> arable fields to the best butterfly site in Yorkshire. Yeah. Through this innovative process. I think that's quite something. Um, and it's, it's, it, you know, it's amazing to see it, isn't it? But actually, it, and it's really that, that innovation in the conservation approach here that's driven that. Yes. I mean, if we hadn't done that topsoil inversion, um, we wouldn't have had those, those numbers of butterflies here. Mm. It was that, that initial intervention and doing this approach that's, that's led, to, led to the abundance of wildlife on the site. So just to walk through that process, what, what did you do exactly with your arable fields? <laughs> so we stopped farming um, half of them in 2015. Um, they had uh, wheat and fodder beet on them that year. Uh, and then in the autumn in November 2015, we had the deep plough come. Um, and I think we ploughed about 40 acres in the first year. And that's a metre deep plough. <coughs> it's a massive plough, isn't it's it? It's a massive plough, yeah. It needs a huge tractor to pull it. Um, and it, it, take, it took him about a week's work to get through um, that area, so it's quite a slow process. Yeah. Um, but that um, buries all that fertility and almost effectively a metre down, doesn't it? Yeah. So it wipes out all your farming fertility that's been so problematic for establishing wildflowers on um, that many people find that they just uh, often wildflowers fail or don't do well in those conditions um, yeah so in in the November we then harrowed after the after the plowing and we sold sowed the wildflowers um, straight away surface sown on onto that in the autumn they gradually germinated through the autumn and into the next spring um, and in the meantime over that period we were planting the trees mm -hmm. um, so I think we did 23,000 trees the first year and then a further 18,000 the second year and then those patches that set like concrete wasn't there they had lots of water at some points and some bits, some bits <laughs> the, the, the fireflowers didn't take and yeah we didn't have ideal conditions it flooded the first planting season so we were actually planting until May we had to get a derogation to continue planting late um, it's got a great spotted woodpecker yeah. <laughs> calling in the background. There's birds all over the place and they are <laughs> chattering away. Um, and so actually what was lovely about the process is that, is, is that it is pretty chaotic from day one, isn't it? Yeah, and the wildflowers vary across the site depending on the conditions. Um, like you say, some took really well, other areas were flooded and compacted and they didn't do as well and they've colonised much more slowly. And tree growth varied across the site as well, so... Some areas we've got probably the best tree growth you've almost will ever see in a planting yeah, yeah. Um, area. In other areas, it's a bit slower. Yeah. So I like that chaos because actually that's that's the unmanageable bit, isn't it? Is the fact you've got 
you're not trying to drive a particular process here, are you? You're trying to, in, 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 you know, the rewilding thing, allow natural processes, in a sense, to take over. Yeah. But your start point had to be very unnatural, which was the ploughing. So it's a high intervention start point and then low intervention after that. But it's almost been left. Um, so you've not, any, you've, you've not sprayed any herbicides or pesticides? No, no herbicides, no pesticides. So you've done no weeding? No weeding, uh, but very high tree survival. 100% tree survival or? 90% plus, I think. 90% plus, yeah. which, is, which is good for planting. And that tree growth rate is amazing. Yeah. So we've seen hit trees here, which I think have probably doubled the standard growth rate. Mm. And there's, why, why is that? Because we've opened up the soils. It's, it's, it's mineralised soil, but it's no compaction. Yeah. Good and, moisture. And no weed competition around the roots. You get... Uh, Though you've got wildflowers growing, there's no mat of grass, so it draws all the water away from the roots. So you're you're convinced this is this is a creative conservation project, which is which is supercharged nature. Absolutely, yeah. Because I feel that when I come here, it's beautiful, it's noisy, it's full of insects, and it's only eight years old. Mm. So for me, this is one of the this is one of the really startling projects that we've worked on. Um, and how are you, obviously you're not producing food anymore, so there's a big debate about food security. We've got to feed ourselves, and you've taken you know, 70, 80, 90 acres of land and put wildflowers down. Yes. How do, you, how do you respond to that kind of food, feeding ourselves debate? I think if you look across the country, the balance is very much in favour of food production at the moment and conventional agriculture, and um, we need little islands or even more than little islands of nature um, rich areas uh, amongst that you can't just have a desert of, uh, of conventional agricultural um, production land that's not how how ecosystems or no. or our environment wants to be or should function yeah so this is an island site but maybe if there's enough biodiversity here it will help to leach out into the wider environment as well <laughs> yeah we'll be uh, providing pollinators and other insects will be uh, going on to the neighbouring farms from this site and mm. birds as well. But you are also producing some food from this site, aren't you now? We uh, have our honeybees, so um, we, yes, we sell honey. We've got about 10 hives at the moment. Um, we, we, we mainly sell wildflower seeds because of the, the profusion of wildflowers that grew up um, after the initial sowing. Um, our income is now about 50% selling wildflower seeds. Okay. And that's a growing business? It's, a, it's a growing business, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you've obviously got groups coming. So there's a group coming today. Yeah, so we've, we started opening up the farm um, just once or twice a year when all the flowers were out and um, there was quite a lot of interest and people enjoyed coming. So we started doing much more regular events, um, so at least twice, twice a month themed events, so a butterfly walk or a, a wildflower ID session, or we had a singing event last week. Okay. <laughs> so do you feel as though the farm, farm has almost had got more people on it now than it would have done? Yes. It's more, more engaging with the community? Yeah, yeah. so um, yeah, many more people see it. Yeah. yeah. And Tom, you're dealing with very much with the wildflower business, aren't you? I'm trying to, yeah. I'm yeah. trying to grow it, and um, there's lots of potential there just our goal is to try and reach out to as many people as possible and we feel like we've chosen a few business streams which you know benefit nature as well as helping to fund our site so 
providing people with wildflower seeds brings into yeah. funding, but it helps the, you know, for, um, for them to create habitat elsewhere. So, um, and also bring people in for events. We're teaching them about the process that we've undertaken here and hopefully inspiring them to do something similar even on a smaller patch of land or larger. We've had people, like bigger landowners, that, that are inspired too. Um, so that's uh, it's great for us to, to see that. And, um, and yeah, these events um, all help to, to keep us going, raise a bit yep. of money for us. And it's lovely to see people on the site and and the smiles on their faces when they go out into the into the meadows and seeing wildlife. and. Yeah, so do you think do you think people are I mean a lot of landowners are picking up on this and they're wanting to do similar things or they're learning from you? I'd like to think so. I think it's it's gradual. Um, you know, we've we've had interest um, at least over the last three or four years from from landowners, mm. at least intrigued as as to what to do. I think as with anything, they they need the right um, sort of persuasion, and that's going to be financial to some degree, isn't it? Mm. Um, but, uh, but to be here and to be inspired and literally immersed in, in what we've created, it shows them what's possible. And it, and it is it is visceral when you come here. It's really, it's a physical feeling because you get this fantastic colour and you're immersed in colour and noise. Yeah. It's unlike almost any other conservation project I know. And the fact it's novel and new, it's, it's, mm. it's great, isn't it? So I, do, do people pick up on that when they're here? Yeah, they, they tell us that they do. Yeah, and um, just um, last week when we had our, our, our singing event, um, we took people to a patch of Viper's Bugloss that we've got this amazing, vibrant blue flower. And because bees love it so much, we, oh, we, we stood in a circle and we just listened. And this constant hum of, of bumblebees yeah. all around the flowers, it was stunning. And um, yeah, like I say, beaming smiles on everyone's faces. Yeah. So how, how, where, where did the singing event come from? Where was that? Who, who's, whose idea was that? Uh, we were approached by a local um, choir leader, and um, she likes to um, sing outside, uh, field singing, she calls right. it. And um, she, she um, thought it would be a good idea to bring people here, and we totally agreed. And, and that's something that we, that we did. And yeah, we had 15 people come, and it was magical, really. And you're going to do it again? Yeah, we've got another one booked um, towards the end of July. So what I like about these these projects is that it starts a it starts a sort of little pathway, a little. Mm. Um, We're experimenting my, with different yeah. things, seeing what what people are interested in. And Alwyn's mentioned we've we've got butterflies and um, uh, sorry moth uh, uh, experts and people, things yeah. like that. So we have all these events. People have kind of found us, to be honest. They, mm. They've heard about what we're doing, and there's lots of enthusiasts in in birds or dragonflies, butterflies, moths, bats. There's also these kind of events that we can host to try and, you know, bring in the community and teach them a little something about nature while giving them the experience here. And that feels like, I mean, there's we touched earlier about the food security thing, but but use of land and and democratising it a bit, it feels like that's what you're doing here. It's actually bringing people in to yeah. your space. It's your private space, but you're bringing them in. To give them learning and, and, and experiences their own, which is it's really rewarding. Yeah. yeah, and some people don't really understand why we've done it. You know, we get some questions like that. You must be mad, <laughs> but but we love living here, obviously, and yeah. um, and to engage with the community like that. And we've just started regular volunteer sessions as well. So that's something again we're offering. You know, almost like a social thing for for the mm. community to get together, and people love that. But they're they're helping us out as well, and the and the habitat here. So. Yeah. And do they go away 
I mean, it's hard to judge people's happiness, isn't it? But they do they go away with smiles on their faces and more often than not, yeah. And they yeah. always say that they've, they've learned something. Yeah. yeah. But actually, I can't think of any occasion when there hasn't been smiles. Yeah. It's uh, it's been great. So um, there's probably quite a, man, a good sort of mental health aspect to what you're what you're offering. I, I think so. Yeah. I think I think people don't always have the opportunity to get out into nature, especially such a rich, vibrant habitat where they can you know experience all different types of nature and mm. and just uh be calm and you know have a have a calming walk around the around the site is is really really good for the soul mm. um but one thing that made this site particularly work well was your soil type wasn't it i mean you're on sand here aren't you pretty much it's actually quite mixed across the site so we've got areas of sand and areas of much heavier clay where we've we've dug a lot of our ponds into um, and again, that adds to the diversity mm. of the, the flowers and uh, the habitat across the site. But we know that Forest of Flowers project works really well on the lighter soils, doesn't it? The plough will, yeah. will do better in, yeah. in lighter soil, yeah. So he... Yeah, we've broken it on heavy soils. <laughs> <laughs> we broke it at Lowther with, with big boulders, unfortunately. Yeah, and <laughs> so... it, it definitely doesn't like rocks, does it? Yeah. yeah. So... Obviously, you've got some small businesses emerging here. People are enjoying the site. Um, do you just see this going and growing? And yeah, where's the future for Forest of Flowers? <laughs> what, what is the future? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it's sort of grown organically. We um, don't have a set business plan really or anything, do we, Tom? <laughs> no, we're, like I say, we're kind of experimenting out with different things, and obviously the site's going to change a lot. As the, as the years go by, the trees are going to grow up mm. and we'll be managing the site, managing the woodland more um, to, uh, to thin it out and make sure we've got the biodiversity um, still. But uh, yeah, I, I just see more and more opportunities coming out. Mm. We'll be doing more coppicing and woodcraft and um, sort of hopefully education sort of sessions. And so you definitely see, you see it as a, a people-based future for the site, bringing people in. Yeah, I think so. I think that's yeah. that's uh, the main way that we can we can do it. We'll we'll continue the the wildflower seeds business yeah. as well. Um, but uh, if we can have people here, you know, using the site to to learn from it and then take those lessons elsewhere, then we feel we're ben- benefiting the whole country potentially. And we've got a group arriving in a few minutes today, so we'll we'll have a chat with them as well. So if people wanted to find you, have you got a website? Yes, we do. Yeah, it's um, forestofflowers.co.uk. And we're on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Forest of Flowers UK. Spot on. <laughs> so we, people can come and look for you and find you. Yes, please Wrong. do. Yeah, all our events are on there. Great. Yeah. Well, we'll see you later when the group arrives. Sorry. No pressure at all. <laughs> so we stood next to... Um, a stand which is all young, older. Is this naturally regenerated? It, it is, yeah. So um, the, the first year after the ploughing, we started to see little young, older seedlings uh, move into this area, thousands of them, in fact. Yeah. Um, so we've got a really dense stand of new, older here. What, what would you say? It's nearly sort of 15 foot tall. Yeah. Um, um, I'm going to say 15 foot tall and 15 meters deep. Yeah. Okay. Let's mix our let's mix our measurements. But it's a really good stand of of tight spaced. It's very natural in how it looks. Um, it's a proper older stand, um, 
and then you're managing the ride next to it. And there's even some older coming in on the other side as well, isn't there? So it's clearly moving. Yeah. And we had this with Willow as well. We've got some stands of Willow that's um, regenerated. And uh, Sycamore as well will seed widely into the um, topsoil inversion soil. So it's that freeing up that soil to, to be accepting of seeds coming in. Yeah. So it's, it could be a good tool in terms of rewilding and natural regeneration of, of woodland. Yeah. In creation site with lots of wildflower meadow type type approaches, it's actually got wetlands. It naturally that, had wetlands that came in uh, and we're looking at a bit that we expanded it and we've created a, a pond or a seasonal scrape here that uh, you can see water in now. But some of the plants arrived of their own volition, didn't they? The uh, bulrush just came here, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Masses of it. Yeah. yeah. So these habitats, within, within this bigger habitat, there's these little niches which have been created as well, which are fantastic for wildlife. Yeah. Does everyone like this site? Very much so, yeah. What do you like about the site? Diversity. It's, it's so loud with nature. It's, ama it's amazing. With birdsong? Yeah. And bees. And bees and the humming and the buzzing and yeah, it's amazing. What about the colours? Yeah, the colours are wonderful. <laughs> You're shy. I am. They're all shy. <laughs> so the group are leaving to the minibus. That's thanks very much for sharing those guys. I think they've had a really great time. They've been bee bathing. We've had some <laughs> wild swimmers in one of your ponds. Loads of birds, butterflies, seen fantastic. So thanks, Tom and Arwen, for hosting today. Um, have you got anything out today? Any memories of the sort of people and their reactions? Well, it's great to meet everyone, obviously. They're all so knowledgeable in their, in their own field, aren't they? And yeah, um, yeah no, it's, everyone was so happy wandering around, weren't they? And uh, just seeing some of the flowers and how great the habitat can be, that's really satisfying for us to see that, that reaction. And um, yeah, hopefully they can, you know, help other people create the the same sort of thing yeah well i mean it's that in eight years this habitat's gone from extremely dull to extremely varied complex and interesting with loads of wildlife so you must be feel really chuffed with what you've done Alwyn. <laughs> yeah we love it don't we yeah mm. yeah we, we love walking around and seeing all the wildlife and it gives a great sense of satisfaction to see that uh, you've created a habitat for so many different things and if other people want to get in touch with you to talk about forest of flowers they can do yeah they can do, yeah. Yeah, foresterflowers.co.uk is our website and uh, we're always uh, welcome to uh, show people around and uh, let people see what we've done. Cool. Thanks very much both. Thank you. Yeah, thank Cheers. you. <laughs> we've just come onto uh, one of our Forest of Flowers sites in Cumbria and I'm here with Alistair Campbell, not the Alistair Campbell, but Alistair Campbell that works for Natural England in Cumbria. And I know that you have a real interest, Alistair, in pollinators. In fact, did you not do your PhD on pollination? I did. Um, before I joined Natural England, I've been working as a researcher. Um, focused on pollinator conservation both here in the UK but also for a couple of years out in Brazil um, working out in the tropics. 
Fantastic. And we're in a sea of, of flowers here. So this is today, it's completely white with oxide daisy. Um, but it's also, we can hear a stream in the background, but there's a, there's a lovely gentle buzz of insects. How important is, is this, uh, the pollination services that bees and these give us, and, what, and how important are the flowers in that process as well? Well, first off to talk about pollination services, um, it's estimated that around 75% of all global crop species depend on some extent pollination by animals. Um, that's predominantly bees, but it's also really important to not forget all the other groups of insects, but also mammals, even reptiles that in some parts of the world contribute to pollination services. And of course, then flowers are absolutely key to all of that in terms of a resource for so many of these pollinators. So getting back as many flowers into the countryside is, uh, is going to be, it's, it's essential if we're going to safeguard our pollinators and pollination services. But those, I understand from you that all the pollinators that we have, they all have different ways of pollinating. Yeah, so there's no, there's no um, uh, so kind of one-stop one shop for you know, all of your pollination needs. Every single crop has a different um, morphology of the flower that will be best suited for a certain type of pollinator. So you, you need to maintain that diversity, that range of species, in order to ensure that the whole range of crops that we rely upon and we, for our diet, are, are effectively pollinated. So a good example would be um, apple, which is mainly pollinated by a range of solitary bees, which are quite small insects, but then beans with the, the deep kind of keeled flower it, only a really big bumblebee would be able to get into that. So you need to make sure you're maintaining these different types of pollinators in your landscape to ensure that all these different crops are getting pollinated, basically. So the flowers that we, I mean, on this site, we've got, <coughs> we put in a range of 12 different wildflower species, and they, they were once common species, so corn cockle, corn chamomile, all, the, all these sort of various annuals, and then we have the oxidases and things like that. Are they, are they good in terms of bringing a broad range of... of insects back into the landscape or should we be looking for more specialist plants that we should be planting? So yeah, the, the, when, when you're deciding which flowers to plant for bees and other insects, it's all about um, the availability of nectar and pollen on the flower. So if you've got a, a nice open flower that has relatively accessible nectar, something like an umbellifer, so that's your cow parsley, wild carrot, things like that, that's providing food for a whole range of insects, particularly flies and small bees and wasps. But then when you want to attract your bumblebees and other bees with the longer tongues, you need the, the clovers, especially red clover, bird's foot trefoil, all those different, that, that kind of mix of flowers will then attract um, an equivalent mix of pollinators. And that's the way you can get the most out of your, your wildflower patch, basically. Building diversity. Building diversity. And so things like, what about thistles, creeping thistles, things like that? I mean, lots of farmers will be out there spraying their thistles, but are they important? Well, I think you only need past a patch of creeping thistle to see the uh, array of life that they support, from butterflies to bumblebees to hoverflies. And it's not only when we think about flower-visiting insects, 
obviously a lot of the focus is on pollinators, but a lot of these insects also contribute to pest control mm -hmm. on farms as well. So particularly thinking about hoverflies, the, the adult will feed on the flowers, but then move into a crop, uh, a cereal crop, lay their eggs, the females, which will then, the larvae when they hatch, will go after and attack the, the aphids, the green fly. So it's not just pollination that we're, we're benefiting mm. from, it's also the control of damaging pest species. So yeah, it's, flowers are important for pollinators, but also a whole suite of different ecosystem services in the countryside. So these, these other bits are often forgotten, aren't they? Because I, I, yeah. I, I had loads of conversations with people about how much they love their bees. Mm -hmm. Actually, bees is just one tiny part of the story, isn't it? Certainly yeah. honeybees is a very small part of the story. Yeah, that's, that's something I, I, I would really like to get across is that there are over 260 species of bee in the UK and over 20,000 species in the whole world. So when we're talking about the honeybee, we're talking about one mm. species. Um, and although they are important um, for pollination, but also for honey production and things like that, when you look across uh, a whole suite of different crops that we we rely upon most of them are pollinated mainly by wild insects so the honeybee is just one 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 piece in this story basically and those wild insects i mean they live in banks mud patches walls uh, nooks and crannies so a lot of the solitary bees they live in often in on earthen banks a bit of exposed ground that's uh, south facing they'll dig their burrows into the the soil and uh, but then bumblebees will often um, create, well, have, they'll build their nests in tussocky grasses, rough grassland. So the key to all of this is leaving bits of the countryside undisturbed, setting aside parts of the countryside, space for nature, um, and not having um, management right up to the, to the, the edge of the fence, um, allowing, yeah, basically providing space for these insects to build their nests and survive. So allowing verges to grow over, having untidy patches in the back of the garden, just this, areas to, that things can go a bit rampant in. Yeah, perfect habitat for a whole range of different pollinators. Bro, Alice, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for your input. That's great. We'll speak to you, well, speak to you on a farm soon, I think. Owen and Tom open their doors to the Forest of Flowers at Hubie. If you are in Yorkshire and perhaps next summer when you wanted to go out for the day, see what they've got on their website and go and see the site. As a woodland creation site, it is probably one of the most visually attractive and nature-rich sites you'll come across. The project only started in 2015. Already, it's a home for a magnificent amount of nature. It's probably the most in terms of numbers anyway, best butterfly site in Yorkshire. And Tom and Olwyn manage it, and they want to show people around it. They want people to go there, and they want people to learn from it. So use it as a resource if you can. Next week, we go back to Cumbria, and we talk to Ruth Dalton. Ruth, she works at Pasture for Life. In fact, she has multiple hats, but she's first and foremost a farmer, and she's passionate about her land, how it's managed, and the animals that manage it with her. You've been listening to the Tree Amble podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music. So thanks very much to Pete for his input there. 
The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul. Thank you.